Welcome to the IH Podcast, where we profile fellows of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth, Coordinator for Faculty Programs. In this episode, I speak with Gabriel Tropp, Associate Professor of German. In our conversation, Professor Tropp talks about his current research project on the aesthetics of attraction and indifference and what inspired him to study German Romanticism. I suppose to start out, could you talk a little bit about your uh, research interests and your main focus on uh, what you do as a, as a scholar? Sure. I'm a German professor, and I work on the history of aesthetics, starting in the 18th century, but going through really the 20th century into the con- to contemporary philosophy. And I also work primarily on poetry, but have started expanding into narrative prose and have rather broad interests spanning. I'm actually an interdisciplinary scholar. Really wanted to be a comparatist originally. Okay. Uh, was interested in English literature, ancient Greek literature, Roman literature, and took the classical languages, uh, studied them when I was in Germany and also at Berkeley as a graduate student. And now I find myself really specializing in Romanticism in the 18th century and then trying to be an intellectual dilettante in a bunch of other domains. And I actually embrace this dilettantism. I feel that uh, in a way to get outside of our comfort zones, we have to become dilettantes or amateurs, maybe is perhaps a more positive way of expressing an amateur being somebody who loves something else and does something out of passion. Is there any way when you branch out, does it help inform your primary research interest? And in what ways does it do that, if that's the case? Yeah, it's... So when you branch out, obviously, uh, when you have a knowledge of the classical tradition, you won't be able to read these poets in a different way. You'll, you'll, You'll be thinking of these poets basically with the tradition that they had in mind when they were writing as well. And and although I have studied the classical languages to a certain degree, it's nothing compared to what they themselves had done when they were studying ancient Greek. They could speak ancient Greek. The Hölderlin mm-hmm. is one of the poets that I study. Okay. He, he often cited verses in ancient Greek and wrote down verses in ancient Greek just off the top of his head, which I would not be able to do. Right. So he was much more immersed in that culture than I would ever be. But I try to embrace that, to get as close as you possibly can, which is a kind of like an asymptotic mm-hmm. uh, form of approach. You never quite get there. Right, right. But more often than not, it's the other way, which is that your optic becomes the lens through which you look at everything else. Mm-hmm. So it's, an, it's less that everything else informs what I do in the 18th century and more so that whatever I read outside of that domain, I can see these little resonances. Well, so what drew you to poetry and specifically ger- German poetry to begin with? Originally, I was interested in philosophy and literature. Okay. I had those. Originally, I wanted to be a double major in English and philosophy. And a friend of mine who is similarly inclined said, don't study English and philosophy. Just study German. It combines the two <laughs> interests in one discipline. And plus, you, get, you learn another language and it's yeah. a different culture. And as I got into it, I had some professors that were extremely influential. Uh, they, they really, I went 
to the, as, a, as a sophomore when I was an undergraduate. I was interested in this class called Deutsche Geistesgeschichte, which is German, roughly German intellectual history, but it's a kind of more fraught term in German. It's the history of the, of the spirit. Right. Uh, so I heard Geist in there. <laughs> yes, exactly. There's Geist, that ever-important term. And so the teacher of that class, this was a graduate seminar, and she saw this little sophomore. I was probably 18 years old. I was 18 years old when I first took that class and uh, was slightly intimidated by the graduate students and by the intellectual level, but at the same time incredibly attracted and drawn to it. And she took me under her wings. Her name was Karen Kenkel. And uh, she was a huge inspiration for me. And I think it was above all that mentorship yeah. that, uh, that pushed me into German. And from that experience, which was so positive, it, I just kind of figured, found what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. So Great. it just it, it, it fell into my lap. Yeah. It was just pure contingency, really. It's just chance that I yeah. happened to talk to this guy, that I happened to get this teacher who was so passionate and excellent in what she did, and that she happened to care also enough to, to take me along for a wild intellectual journey. What's the project you're working on now during your fellowship? Right now, I'm working on a project called Attraction and Indifference. It sounds abstract, yeah. uh, and it is a little bit abstract. But uh, one of the interesting things, to go back to the f- interest in ancient Greece that I was telling you about, is to look at the way Greek culture and Greek thought uh, thinks about these intense, overwhelming experiences. So Plato, in his Ion, will describe the the force of the work of art like a magnet. And the idea is that uh, the god magnetizes the speaker who then uh, magnetizes the crowd, and they all get bound together in this social unity which somehow bypasses, incidentally, rationality, which is also what Plato found so problematic about it. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you have this community that's, that's created by these forces of attraction. And so I was fascinated by that metaphor. It's a, it's, it's a figure, or a, or a figure rather, that figure comes up in Romanticism, this magnetizing of people's brains. Uh, and it usually has to do with... Uh, with an attempt to think about the human being as as drawn to certain conditions, states, inexplicably and sometimes unawares to other people, to certain relationships, to certain ways of inhabiting or being in the world, often in ways that bypass the self-conscious control of that person, and they call that attraction. And then yeah. they link that to uh, attraction and repulsion in the natural world. So it becomes a way of embedding the human being in the natural world, too. And this is a, an operation that you find in a philosopher that interests me named Friedrich Schelling in his early Naturphilosophie, or nature philosophy, which is seen as just metaphysical nonsense by most scientists nowadays, but actually is, is coming back in a certain sense uh, with popular science writers who, are, who want to think about science, scientific investigation, not just as finding the facts, but as, as making us more creative and more vital in the world. And so attraction is one side of the equation. Attraction is when you take something that pulls you in a certain direction, and all of a sudden you intensify that, that difference or that thing that matters, mm-hmm. and you 
form your identity or at least a part of your identity around that relationship. You could think of an example of that in love. You could think of an example of that actually in any repeated behavioral pattern. Political identity is a form of attraction. Yeah. Uh, that one always tends to vote Democrat or one always tends to vote Republican, right? Or that one has a certain gravitation, a certain certain set of repeated behaviors that one always is, is, is uh, experiencing again and again and one can't escape it. In a way, that is not just an attraction as a singular instance, as something that one's, one's attracted to, but as a rep- repeated pattern over time. And scientists will call this an attractor state. And one of the things that this instance of, of repeated preferred states toward which an element or uh, some kind of a behavioral subject will we'll gravitate towards. And I think that the personality can also, you can see this in your own personality as well, where certain things will all of a sudden become concepts, intensities, affects toward which one is pulled. Yeah. And only really an intense perturbation of the system will be able to jolt somebody out of that attractive pull. So politics, one and, and Plato saw this very easily, that very, very uh, perceptively, that, that politics can be a matter of attraction. And, of course, his entire uh, system is in a way uh, to try to push back against an overwhelming attraction and to try to, to try to raise the attraction to a form of consciousness, which he calls the idea. But the idea, as we know from Plato, also requires attraction. In a way, he, he just refocuses and repurposes attraction to a cognitive profit process of intellection. So this idea of, of the erotic pedagogy in the symposium, that we have to be drawn towards, up towards the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also God becomes, in a yeah. way, the, the... The ideal. Uh, yeah, not just the ideal, but the, the magnetic. In a way, if you look at, say, Dante's uh, Divine Comedy, there's, there's a sense in which um, there is a kind of a magnetic poetics of, of, of nature that, that structures mm-hmm. that te- text. So, for example, um, Dante, the pilgrim, as he's going through, the, progressing through the poem, is al- always feels the power of gravity. Okay. He's always in danger of falling. Okay. And, of course, he's the only one inhabiting that world who's in danger of falling and who feels that power of gravity, which also enters into that semantics of attraction in a different mm-hmm. sense, not the subjective attraction, but this, this, this objective force. Yeah. And um, the gravitational point of that text is very interesting because it's, there's a precise location to it, and it is the nether parts of the satanic body. Okay. Uh, so, so falling is always falling towards the most abject, the dirtiest part of the satanic body, which in its own way is, a, is not really represented explicitly. It's in the text. It's kind of an interesting form of rep- how that's represented. All of the other characters just float magically into, into place. They occupy their position in the hierarchy. And the idea is that uh, of that text is that if you were to just reduce your subjectivity to a zero point, you too would fly up to God like an arrow and just occupy your position in this rotating hierarchical order. So, so you see that, that the idea of attraction is also theologically yeah. structured. You can see why Plato is so important because pl- this platonic structure yeah. that you see in the symposium, that's this magnetic process that draws you up. And, uh, yeah, it works on the body, and as soon as you lose the body, then 
you're you're where you need to be. Right. Yeah. Right. And of course, um, then as, as Plato is revised and as as the body is made central again in discourses and seen as not something that's uh, not something to be refused, at least. Intra- attraction then becomes bodily and physiological. Oh, okay. Yeah. In the 18th century, you see this quite clearly in the Romantic tradition, in the German yeah. Romantic tradition, that physiological attraction, erotic attraction, there's a whole novel that was based on this kind of a, a parallelism, an analogy between the attraction that you see in the physical world with the, the um, chemical compounds moving towards one another and our erotic feelings that the novel is called Elective Affinities by Goethe. It's a novel also that I'm interested in working on. And to a certain extent, the way that analogy functions in the book is itself somewhat problematic. In other words, he's not necessarily saying that this is an analogy. To a certain extent, this analogy is fictive. And the the precise status of that analogy remains tenuous, but the analogy is shown to have a certain power over the imagination. Characters are drawn to that metaphor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Of of their of interaction their, with nature? Yeah. Of, of, okay. Of basically human like, interaction being like molecular interaction. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I got it. And in a weird way, uh, at the time, one would say that if human beings work like molecules, then they have no freedom. That was the central problem of the novel. Nowadays, the great revision that's happening is we think that molecules themselves have a strange type of freedom, of agency. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so to say that human beings behave like molecules is in a certain sense to say that we do have freedom because molecules have a certain form of agency as well. I didn't actually get to the second half. This is just the attraction side of the book. The other half I should just mention very briefly. Sure. I don't know how much time we have. No, we got, we got a little bit of time. Okay. That's fine. Um, is indifference. So an indif- by indifference, I actually don't mean not caring, but a very specific operation that is not necessarily directly opposed to attraction, but simply obliquely other than it, which is to say taking a difference and making it no longer make a difference. So thinking of it more as indifferentiation as opposed to difference. I see. So things that, that should count but that don't count. Even Plato will, will – with every attraction to a specific difference comes also an elision of differences. So one thinks about the platonic attempt to, to, to basically be drawn towards the good – where mm-hmm. the good is the most general conception of the good. Right. And in a way, indifferentiates all of these particulars. What's, what's fascinating about the Platonic model is that it is the intensification of a differential point that culminates in a process of de-differentiation, of, not, of somehow making those differences not count, so that one is no longer in love with Socrates. One is no longer attracted to this or that particular person. God is, is the most general uh, mm-hmm. But once attained, Universal. it kind of like dissipates right. and levels out. And, and this then becomes internalized as certain stra- as a kind of strategy for, for coping with existence. So the Stoics will determine what counts and what doesn't count. They call the adiaphora, which is the, the non-differentiated or the non-difference. It's, it's something that doesn't make a difference. Okay. It's what doesn't belong 
It's these, these questions that don't belong into questions of truth mm. or questions of the good life or something like that. Right. So, for example, economic prosperity. Yeah. Let's take that question, uh, which is so – seems to be the structuring the, – the, the primary value of our culture seems to be how do I make money? And if that's the attractor through which in a life – the concept of life is organized, right, the code of money, then uh, at least in my view, that's an impoverishment of our experience, and, and, of course, you know, it has nothing to do with the questions of, of ethics, of love, of intensity, of an interesting life. There's no there's – no, making money is not interesting in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no human interest intrinsically in making money. Why do it? Just to keep making money. It's a system that propagates itself. Right. And so money could be said to be an uh, – uh, belong to – one can then indifferentiate the code of money. That is, turn it into a non-entity. Of course, one can't. That's, that's the problem. Uh, yeah. but, but what, and, and that's why the money is such a powerful organizing attractor. It's, it's, it's this inevitable materiality that we can't get out of. There's no outside mm-hmm. <laughs> that pull in yeah. a way. But what one can do is one can in, engage in techniques of indifferentiation. That is, mental exercises that say, okay, you know, as long as... I'm surviving or as long as I'm doing something worthwhile, maybe maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe the excess doesn't really matter of, you know, whether or not I'm the richest or the poorest or right. whatever. Actually, that's not that money sh- – that one shouldn't care about money because there are so many people who are living in states of precariousness. But that some sort of a life that has the bare um, – that, that has dignity where people – can dedicate themselves to something beyond the code of money. In other words, not to let that be the dominant code that organizes our experience. It's a shame that we live in a society where this has to be a theme, where in a way there is poverty and it's such a, a, a great problem. But of course, our goal is to, is to set the bar a little bit higher than survival or than just to, to make an existence. But how do I live in a way that the ancient problem of the, the good life, the rich life, a life that's full of empathy and excitement and passion and vitality. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.